Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Michael Flynn, Donald Trump, and the Russia investigation. And Richard, the latest news in the ongoing saga of the special counsel investigation into the Trump campaign slash administration's dealings with Russia is that uh, Michael Flynn, who had this exceedingly brief tenure as Donald Trump's national security advisor, lasted just the first few weeks of the administration, uh, pled guilty about lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russia. Now, ABC, when it was running with this story, got a really salient detail wrong, and this has still led to some public confusion, even though several days have passed since they corrected it. They said that Flynn had reached out to the Russians during the campaign. We now know it was actually during the transition. This was after Trump had been elected president, and it was regarding the sanctions that the Obama administration was placing on Russia on its way out of the door. Um, Richard, when that was the story. There were the, – it was during the campaign. There were people acting like this was the end of the Trump administration. Given the clarification and what we know now, what are the implications for the Trump administration? Should they be worried? Um, I don't think they should be worried. I think people who are making charges that this is inappropriate context should be worried. Let me make it perfectly clear. I never supported and I thought it was a very bad idea to nominate Flynn to take the role as a national security advisor. I was not alone on that. Uh, but if you're in transition and you're going to have to deal with Russians and everybody else, the thought that there's going to be some kind of an embargo with you speaking on your opposite numbers during the transition period means that everything is going to have to be backloaded until you get to January 21st with dead silence. My guess is that thousands of people in all these administrations with foreign policy policy responsibilities have engaged in speaking with their opposite numbers, not just the Russians, but the Chinese, the Indians, the British, the French, and everybody. I regard that as a necessary part of doing your own particular work. And the thought that it can influence the um, result of the election means that causation has to run backwards. That is, events which happened later have to cause events that happened earlier. So I think, in effect, that once you make that correction, what happens is uh, this is a kind of hysterical response with respect to Trump. As I've said on multiple occasions, I wish he would resign, but I do not think that anybody should say that those wishes, however well-grounded, um, should lead you to mischaracterize the evidence and start to find some kind of illegal conduct uh, by um, somebody in the position of Michael Flynn. What he did is what everybody in that office should do, and if he is guilty of something, then my guess is that there are a long line of public officials in the Obama administration, uh, the Trump administration, and all the administrations before them who are going to find themselves similarly in an embarrassed position. I don't want to get too lost in the sidebars of this story, but let me have you indulge just one. The stock market took a huge temporary plunge when Brian Ross from ABC issued what turned out to be this erroneous report that had happened during the campaign. And over the weekend, President Trump, in response to ABC botching the story, said on Twitter – I'm quoting him here – people who lost money 
when the stock market went down 350 points based on the false and dishonest reporting of Brian Ross of ABC News, he has been suspended, should consider hiring a lawyer and suing ABC for the damages this bad reporting has caused many millions of dollars, close quote. How would you rate the president's legal advice there, Richard? Is there a cause of action there? Well, I think the answer is no. But interestingly enough, there's at least under the securities rule the law, uh, the position that when somebody makes deliberate misrepresentation, but he has to be an insider on this stuff, uh, that what happens is the people who lose get to recover from the corporation. The people who gain get to keep their money. Uh, so the social losses are relatively small because these things were, away, were erased very quickly. And so what it is, it's a classic case of litigation overkill. I do not think that anything like that would bother Mr. Trump. I also think it's the case of that if you're going to buy and sell on that kind of a news and make some situation, you could be expected to corroborate the story from other kinds of sources rather than to sort of uh, link heavily. Uh, oddly enough, I think on this particular point, the fact that the news often does become highly unreliable makes it essentially a little bit dangerous for people to start to rely on them unless they see some kind of corroboration. I think the president always likes to play the bully against these other people, and this is just another opportunity to get after ABC. I assume he was suspended for a reason. I don't know whether it was simple incompetence that led him to get the wrong timing on this story or whether it was a fraudulent situation. If it is the latter, uh, then the dismissal or the sanction is fully warranted. If it's just the standard garden variety case of miscommunication inside the department and so forth, I think an apology should probably suffice with a warning. You better not do it again because the second time will come down harder on you. I want to get your sense of the broader arc of this investigation. This is what our friend Andy McCarthy wrote recently at National Review. I'm quoting him here. Under the Mueller collusion precedent, it is evidently now American practice to criminalize foreign policy disputes under the pretext of conducting a counterintelligence investigation, close quote. It's a strong criticism, Richard. Is it a fair one? Well, I mean, it's not at all clear exactly what it is that Mueller is conducting. It doesn't sound as though it is a counterintelligence investigation. It sounds as though it's a comprehensive investigation of trying to figure out what kind of influence took place with respect to the Russians on our campaign. Um, it could turn into that. It may well be that in part. But I think in general, what I would do is I would regard this as a kind of a global witch hunt of one sort or another. I've made it very clear from the beginning. I think the last thing you want to do is to have somebody who's a close buddy of Jim Comey, somebody who's associated with Rosenstein, somebody who has been in the FBI to conduct an inquiry where it turns out that the conduct of FBI officials may itself be involved. So I think they ought to get them out and start over with somebody else. There are thousands of people who can do this job. Do I think they've come up with anything yet? Well, it depends on what you're trying to find. Uh, do I think it's news that the Russians were trying to influence the outcome of American elections? They've probably been doing that in one form or another since 1940, maybe not in every election, but certainly in some. Uh, do I think that there's any evidence of collusion with the Trump administration to beat Hillary Clinton? I think at that point, the, the evidence is not only not proved, but given all the evidence and efforts to try and find out this connection and coming up with nothing, that it becomes highly unlikely. The better scenario of what's going on seems to me to be pretty simple. The Russians are engaged in a disinformation campaign. They know they can't influence the outcome of the election. They just don't have enough money and resources to do things on this. But what they hope to do is to smear both candidates so that no matter which one comes into office, he's going to be less secure in the domestic market than he would have been if these smears weren't done. 
And their strategy has now succeeded beyond their wildest dreams because what we're doing is we're running a kind of an investigation that necessarily compromises the ability of this or indeed any other president to do what he wants. So I think, in effect, what we should do on this thing is blame the Russians, but not constantly try to implicate the Trump administration. Uh, there is, I think, a kind of an almost unholy eagerness uh, to find some kind of illegal conduct. I agree that the president's conduct is erratic in many ways. I wish he would resign. I've made that perfectly clear. But I don't think that is anything remotely close uh, to a criminal investigation on the stuff that happens. And indeed, every time you see that somebody is indicted for lying to the FBI, what it starts to tell you is they have absolutely nothing on the guy with respect to his primary conduct. And one of the difficulties about lying to the FBI is it's awfully clever for them doing their interrogations to get you to blurt out an answer, which if you thought about, you would not make. And so that's like making a mistake in a deposition. I do not like those kinds of criminal accounts at all. If there was something that was going on out there with respect to the world, I could understand it. I think Flynn is in some sense a very impolitic person. But at this particular point, I think the reason he took the deal and he will turn evidence such as it is against Trump or anybody else is he simply could not afford the expenses of trying to maintain the defense against somebody um, like the government and like Mueller. There's a real danger in the ability of government officials to hit so hard upon people that they surrender because they can't afford the cost of mounting a sensible defense. So I think this whole thing is extremely unwholesome, and I frankly wish it would go away. There's another wrinkle to this story, and it's no surprise, a Twitter-related one. Uh, the president tweeted over the weekend in a message apparently written by one of his lawyers that – I'm quoting him here – I had to fire General Flynn because he lied to the vice president and the FBI. He's pled guilty to those lies. It's a shame because his actions during the transition were lawful. There was nothing to hide, close quote. Now, the reason that has raised eyebrows, we already knew that the ostensible reason for Flynn's firing – was that he had lied to Vice President Pence about this contact with the Russians, which led to Pence repeating that lie publicly as if it were the truth. But this is the first reference we have that suggests the president knew that Flynn lied to the FBI, which of course would color the president's having asked Jim Comey, who was then the director, uh, to let Flynn go. By the way, there are plenty of people who are now making the case that this tweet has been misinterpreted, that Trump was saying that with the knowledge he has now, and it shouldn't be implied that he knew then that Flynn had lied to yes. the FBI. So the last, yeah. two things there. I mean, How much does that matter? And if it were the case that Trump knew, does he then become exposed to a possible obstruction of justice charge? Well, I think, first of all, on the tweet, this is the president running off at the mouth. And um, I certainly don't think it's politic, but you could easily read it as to say, well, now I know that he lied to the FBI then. Well, in fact, if he did lie to the FBI early on, it seems to me you're not ordering somebody not to do an investigation. And in fact, in my view, is if I thought that the only thing that Flynn did was wrong was to mislead the FBI during the course of this investigation, I would prefer that it not be made the subject matter of criminal charges. As I've said before, I've taken the consistent position that I think you have to show some illegal form of primary conduct before what happens with the FBI becomes illegal. This is the same kind of trap that managed to get people like Scooter Libby and so forth um, in an earlier administration. My guess is if you did this, the first person you'd have to now run an indictment would be Hillary Clinton because she made multiple falsehoods, all of which are on the record to the FBI, and they just took a pass. And so in general, uh, this is a very, very bad thing to do 
which is to let the FBI put forward a series of questions that turn people into criminals. What you want them to do is to find conduct for which they were not involved and use that as the basis of the situation. So there's a kind of a freeding frenzy against the president. And given the fact that he will always rise to the bait, there's going to be more and more of this kind of stuff. I think the whole thing has become completely unseemly and is a massive distraction from all the serious questions that you have to have in running a president. This guy has enough difficulties doing the regular charges in office. The last thing we want to do is put red flags in front of him so his behavior will become even more erratic than it otherwise is. Let me get you to address the newest argument that's being advanced by the president's critics, one that appeared in the New York Times the very day that we're recording this. Being advanced by a couple of your colleagues at the University of Chicago Law School, Daniel Hemmel and Eric Posner, and they argue that Flynn and whoever on the Trump transition team gave him guidance as to what to say to the Russians should be criminally liable under the Logan Act, which their summary here uh, makes it a crime for a United States citizen without authority from the federal government to communicate with foreign officials in order to influence the measures or conduct of any foreign government in a dispute with the United States or to defeat the measures of the United States. That argument persuasive to you, Richard? Well, I think it's a completely unpersuasive argument. The basic purpose associated with the Logan Act is to make sure that ordinary citizens do not try um, to intervene in various kinds of government affairs because to the extent that they do so, they necessarily make the task of those people who are in power more difficult than it would otherwise be. It cannot possibly be that this particular statute was meant to apply to an incoming administration. Indeed, if Flynn and the people who advised him to speak to the Russians were guilty of certain kinds of activities, then any time that the president of the United States elect before he takes office speaks to a foreign leader, whether it be Putin or anybody else, he's also going to be guilty of uh, criminal behavior. It cannot be that during this period of transition, what we want to do is to completely immobilize the future president and his future administration so that when they take office, they're absolutely in the dark with respect to the way in which they deal uh, with anybody else. So I think the clear and powerful answer to this is it ought not to apply under these circumstances. If the text is written that way, you read an implied exception into it. And if, in fact, somebody says, well, they really mean to make sure that the future president can't do it, then I think that there would be very serious separation of powers arguments to say something to the effect that you cannot hamstring an administration by passing a piece of legislation of this sort. So I think that's the kind of argument which only adds heat but doesn't add light to the particular situation. I'll guarantee you that they did not cite in that particular article a single case of a prosecution under any circumstances remotely like the ones that we have at present. And if, in fact, the commonplace occurrence of speaking to somebody who's your opposite number before you take office is criminal, then you should have thousands of these prosecutions. So I think this is an argument which is made for this case and for this case only, and I wish the New York Times had not published it. So final question that I'll put to you. You've referred here a couple of times to President Trump's General lack of fitness for office, even if there's not much to the case that Mueller is making. To that point, Ezra Klein, the proprietor of Vox, wrote a piece last week, got a lot of attention. It was called The Case for Normalizing Impeachment. and It's a very long piece without a particularly convenient nut graph, so I'll just try to summarize it as concisely as I can for our listeners. The problem, Klein says, with the uh, the way the people who want Trump out of office are approaching him is that they're either looking for something criminal to get to impeachment or something medical, really psychological, to invoke the 25th Amendment, which can remove a president on grounds of disability. And Klein says, in reality, 
were just too passive about the impeachment power. There are certain people that are just not fit for high office and they don't have to break the law or be certifiably insane to represent too much of a danger. So he argues we shouldn't limit this to cases of, of criminal liability or physical or mental defects. We should just use the impeachment mechanism as a quality control measure in a, in a way that we haven't. How does that strike you, both as a general matter and in the case of Donald Trump? I think it strikes me as something which at first glance is a little bit plausible, but then it's positively scary. Uh, because, yes, Trump turns out to be somebody who is a little bit unstable, but he's surrounded with all sorts of other people who are not unstable. I do think, in effect, that the thing that you're most worried about is whether or not he's going to order a first-strike nuclear war against somebody else. I think to the extent that that offer is unlawful, the internal constraint that's available is the subordinates to which he does it are not under duty to obey an unlawful order by the president. And if he doesn't have authorization to do that, either because of an actual emergency or a congressional declaration, then I think that they're within their rights not to do it. And then once they refuse to do it and he continues to persist, then I think you have grounds to remove him from office on either or both of these grounds. Uh, but if you want to do this, what is the ground going to be? There's no question that uh, Impeachment does not necessarily require the commission of a common law crime. It's often said that sort of systematic disregards of public trust and recklessness in office may be sufficient to do it. I don't think that kind of trace case can be made out against Trump under these circumstances, notwithstanding his crazy kind of tweets. And I'm worried that if we normalize impeachment, what will happen is in every future election and every other kind of disputed information, we can start to bring the same charges. This would be extremely difficult. If it turns out that you have a Congress which is controlled by one party and a president in another party, because at that particular point, you're not going to have the constraints. The basic rule of thumb in American politics, which I endorse, is you cannot get a president out of office unless and until his own party is prepared to turn on him. And whatever Trump has done thus far, that is not going to be the case. I think he's been highly erratic. I think his behavior has been bizarre. I wish he would disappear into the woodwork and so forth. Uh, but I don't think, in effect, he's done anything yet that anyone can point to, um, which is reckless apart from the use of his crazy little tweets like Rocket Man with respect to the various leaders in, in, in North Korea. That is not enough for me uh, to want to do this. This would have a lot more power if I thought Ezra Klein was a conservative who's turning against his own party than it is from a liberal who has all sorts of other reasons to want him to get out. Uh, so I think that, you know, what we see in Trump is not going to change. I said that a long time ago. I still believe it's correct. Every day he's going to come up with some kind of, shall we say, moral gaffe of one form or another, which will put him in hot water. And then at the same time, the stock market will start to be going purring along because the good stuff that he does, nobody pays the slightest bit of attention to. And that, of course, is the massive campaign for deregulation and lower taxes, which is already showing some degree of a positive effect. Uh, so I think we could run a lot better government without Donald Trump there. But I think the rather fevered effort to get him out on the Logan Act or for obstruction of justice or for impeachment are all dead letters. And I wish this kind of conversation would actually stop at the moment. Uh, if he's got something truly terrible, we could go after him. But this particular point, I think he's only showing the weakness of the critics. Uh, the critics are not showing his weaknesses. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.